world is collapsing. You know, it's not a time for complacency. It's not a time for selfishness. You know, like in a perfect world, we could all be completely selfish and complacent because everything would be perfect and everything would have been fixed. But that clearly is not the world in which we live. You know, people who are worth tons of money are afraid of speaking out because it might jeopardize their ability to make tons more money. If you're financially comfortable, if you've had success, if you can pay the rent, I truly believe you should use your platform to address issues and try and make the world a better place. Hey y'all, you're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Kick back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial topics and answer scientific questions. Ranging from health and nutrition to behavioral risks and climate change. I'm Dr. Taylor Wallace. And I'm Dr. Shatha Chakraborty. Together we'll loosen lips and spill tea with special guests you will not want to miss. Today, we're thrilled to have legendary musician, DJ, and author Moby as our first guest for season two. He's been an outspoken animal activist since his early career, using his platform to also draw attention to the potential implications of animal agriculture on our warming planet. He's a unique voice in Hollywood, urging his fellow celebrities to use their platforms to raise awareness to the potential risk we face. And here he is now with us only on Risky Behavior. So we want to let our audiences know that we are joined here today with Moby, who has over 20 million records sold worldwide. And what's so cool about you is you've really used your platform to draw attention to causes you're passionate about, primarily the plights of animals that we share our planet with. And this is how I actually got to know you. So you were a fellow panelist for Future Coalition's Earth Day Live uh, for Earth Day's 50th anniversary. And we also had with us Academy Award winner Joaquin Phoenix. And what you have in common with Joaquin, aside from both being celebrities, is that you are both animals rights activists and you're both vegans and very proud vegans. So we'd love to kick off this conversation starting right there with that. What is it, how has your celebrity helped you with your activism? That's an interesting question because, I mean, I never expected to have a career as a musician. When I was growing up, I thought that I would be a philosophy professor because I'd been a philosophy major at UConn and SUNY Purchase. And I thought I would teach community college and make music in my spare time and no one would ever listen to it. Wow. <laughs> so very different. That's hard to believe path. coming from you. <laughs> so it was very surprising when I started to actually have a career as a musician. And almost from the beginning, um, I guess because I, I had been raised by activists and activism was such an important part of my life that from, you know, from when I first started making records in the early 90s, to varying degrees, I wanted to use my platform to draw attention to things that were that I found to be important. And of course, there have been times in the last 30 years that I've been selfish and I've forgotten to use my platform 
as an activist, but ultimately that's the best thing and like one of the be most redeeming aspects of public figure status is being able to be a good advocate, you know, a public advocate for the things that I believe in. Thank, well, thank you for thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for bringing your celebrity to real policy issues that really affect us all across generations. I think what was so critical about the panel that you did back in April was that it really was intergenerational, where you are able to bring in people of different demographics, primarily the younger demographics, and show them that there are people that have preceded them who care, and especially the ones that can speak to millions and millions of people. What do you think about how to um, how to improve upon that a little bit? Why isn't there more people like yourself, more people like Joaquin, more people like um, that really are trying to take advantage of that and get that satisfaction that you've so eloquently just described to us? Yeah, that's something I've spent a lot of time wondering about. And I was raised by activists. I was raised by hippies. I was raised by artists and academics. And I was raised with this belief that the world is broken and anything we can do to help fix it, we should do. That's just such a, it's such an integral part of my ethos. And it's hard because like, it's very easy for me to lapse into judgmentalism. Um, and I try to avoid it. Against people who aren't potentially taking advantage of the base that they've created? I mean, I watched an award show a couple of years ago and it was a music award show. And I think maybe roughly 1% of the people who spoke tried to draw attention to something political or some issue. Whereas everyone else was just clueless and self-involved. And I felt so judgmental because I was like, you know, the world is collapsing. You know, it's not a time for complacency. It's not a time for selfishness. You know, like in a perfect world, we could all be completely selfish and complacent because everything would be perfect and everything would have been fixed. But that clearly is not the world in which we live. I mean, I understand some people, like maybe some people have to worry about their careers because they're taking care of elderly relatives or they, they're, they need to pay for their kids to get medicine or something, you know, like, and in that case, I guess I understand people being cautious or people being hesitant to speak out. But like, what exasperates me and what I get judgy about is when, you know, people who are worth tons of money are afraid of speaking out because it might jeopardize their ability to make tons more money, you know? And like, if, if you're financially comfortable, if you've had success, if you can pay the rent, I truly believe you should use your platform to address issues and try and make the world a better place. Yeah. Well, I mean, here are forums that are being created because there's a need for it. And it's incredible that you are lending your time to put the message out there, because especially now, as we have there's, you know, new forms of media and new vehicles for communication, you're not reaching a wide audience necessarily just by going on primetime the way you would in the past. So it's really also critical to reach different audiences through different means of communication. So it's different forums like this, this podcast and others. And I know you've done so many, especially following uh, your book or your memoir that was recently released too, just last year, I believe, then it all fell apart. We'd love to hear a little bit about that. But taking advantage of these types of 
forums that reach different audiences is so, so key. So please keep saying what you're saying because we need to get your voices and more of your contemporaries' voices out to the public. I mean, the truth is, um, like on social media, I've found a balance roughly where I take 50% of the time I post about myself and 50% of the time I post about issues. The truth is I hate posting about myself. Like if it was just up to me, I would only post about animal issues, about environmental issues, about climate <laughs> you're issues. You're the anti-celebrity. <laughs> you're you're the exact found, opposite of Shetha. <laughs> what I found is that like, unfortunately, I have to post about non-activist things right in order to sort of attract the non-activists mm -hmm. you know like like if i only posted vegan content which is what i'd like to do i would only for the most part reach the vegans yeah and i feel like it's this trade-off where like i have to post things that sometimes i don't care about that much right in order to have an audience that I can reach with the things that I think are important. Well, that's an important point that I was going to jump right into. It's, you know, especially on social media these days, I feel like we kind of silo off into our own little, uh, it's kind of like confirmation bias, we call it in science. It's, you know, I'm like around people that think, uh, and feel the same way um, as I do. And so I've actually had a very similar experience on social media because I seem to attract people that think scientifically, that think in the same aspects and ways that I do. And so that's, you know, yeah, I think how it's do important. we reach other audiences, right? I think you hit the nail on the head with that because if you're going to appeal, if you want your message out there, it's so critical. And I, this is what I do as a communication scientist. I study communications and scientists are the worst at communicating, which is why it's so important to actually bring in other voices that are naturally much better at it, that have the actual reach, and then to take advantage of all of the different, what I see as positive, all of the different new channels and methods of reaching people. And we can't use the same message, right? Ultimately, your end goal, Moby, is to see behavioral change, right? To get people to change the ways that they interact with animals, that they interact with the natural environment. But if we framed it the same way across all of the people we're trying to reach, there's going to be people who fall through those gaps because that same messaging is not going to be received as intended by us, by everyone. And so adjusting and framing based on that final end recipient is so important. So that's why th these types of conversations are really important. And it's tricky because like in my early days of activism back in the eighties, you know, I, when I was growing up, I played in punk rock bands. And so I had a very confrontational style of activism. You know, I just, I wanted to yell at people. Right. But what I learned was when I yelled at people, they didn't pay attention to what I was saying. They simply responded to how I was saying. Mm -hmm. And so as time has passed, and I find this true for a lot of people, we've had to learn how to be effective activists. You know, and a lot of times that means doing things that feel contrary to our instincts. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you want to scream at someone, recognizing that as an activist, screaming at them might not necessarily accomplish what you want to accomplish. And... Right. So it's finding that balance between, because to your point, no matter what we say, 
we're going to alienate someone. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that's just the nature of the sort of like the demographic bell curve. Someone's, especially in social media, someone's going to be pissed off. And so you can't, you can never create effective activist content that will be loved and applauded right. by every single person who sees it. Like, by definition, some people are going to dismiss it, but I have to remind myself that the criteria by which I assess my activism, my content, is not how it makes me feel, but how it reaches people and how it hopefully moves the needle and potentially changes the world. Exactly. So we see the same thing from a scientist perspective. You know, we can give people data all day, but, you know, it's it's all in how you deliver the message. Yeah. And who's delivering the message? Exactly to your point, Moby. You can't just, you you don't want the scientists necessarily communicating to the Gen Zer. Who is it that really they trust that they're going to actually pay attention and ultimately change their behavior? So why don't we move into that a little bit? What is it that we're looking to actually influence people to do for themselves, better for themselves, for their families, uh, communities, and then for the globe. What is it that you are really aiming to see happen and to accomplish in all of these efforts that you're making? Um, <laughs> I mean, the sort of, the brass tax answer for me is to stop using animals for human purposes. But the slightly more esoteric answer is for our species to wake up from magical thinking that is not supported empirically or by evidence. You know, like nothing annoys people more than telling them that their actions have consequences and that and telling them that there is real evidence. And that is, you know, every problem we have is simply a problem of people ignoring evidence and people engaging in magical thinking. You know, the magical thinking that leads someone to think they can ignore climate change. You know, the magical thinking that leads someone to think that COVID-19 is an opinion. Right. You know, the magical thinking that leads someone to think they can be healthy and self-concerned for their well-being while they eat garbage and smoke cigarettes. Or the magical thinking that leads someone to think they can be an animal lover while contributing to the suffering and death of animals. You know, like, so ending that magical thinking and actually accepting that there is such a thing as quantifiable evidence. And if we keep ignoring it, we end life on the only home that we have. So that's the big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, but what's the realistic thing? Like, cause right. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a it's lot. such a to good take. question. And I, I have, I have no idea. I truly, because we're so far from living authentic lives that are informed by evidence. Like, where do we even begin? Like, I mean, I could say like, Make semiotics required core curriculum for every person from kindergarten on. Um, that seems I don't know. like a reasonable policy. Or, you know, we could invest in science. <laughs> I mean, we don't do enough of that, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's the, so that's it's similar to 
what I can say is it's almost similar to medicine. What I mean by that is on one hand, you know, friends of mine who are doctors, they, they treat the illness, but ultimately their goal is to prevent the illness. And prevention is complicated. You know, like, so the illness that we collectively have as a species, like, you know, or like racism, like ultimately you want to cure racism, you want to end racism, but in the meantime, it's a lot more expedient to legislate and prevent people from being racist. So how do you take that approach to our pathological addiction to magical thinking? If you have an answer, sign me up. (laughs) A lot of my friends who have become incredibly misanthropic, their attitude is, oh, it's doubtful humanity will figure it out. And there's a better than likely chance that 90% of the population of the earth is just simply going to go away at some point because we're creating an unsustainable system. And as we know, humans tend to only figure things out when situations get really bad. You know, like no one thinks of getting sober unless they're bottoming out as an addict. And I say that as a bottomed out alcoholic drug addict. Like, what's it going to take for our species to bottom out and simply accept that we can no longer pretend that things aren't the way they actually are? Why is that from your vantage point? Why is it that we have to wait until we are feeling the worst before we go see a doctor or we start to think about going to AA when we have been uh, consistently behaving badly, treating our bo- bodies badly over a period of time. What is, from everything you've learned from your personal experiences, what informs that, you think? It's a combination, I think, of heredity and neural architecture. And of course, the two have informed one another. Like, you can't necessarily say there's heredity over here and neural architecture over here. It's like, they are the same thing. Um, you know, the dialectic between the two. And what I mean is I was watching a documentary about a watering hole in sub-Saharan Africa during a drought. And at this watering hole, there were alligators, there were hippos, there were lions, there were, you know, like the scariest creatures you can imagine. And hiding behind a bush were a few terrified monkeys. And like the monkeys would work up all their courage and run to the water, scoop up a handful of disgusting, filthy water, and then run back to the relative safety of their bush. You know, and every time they ran to get the water, I'd say they put their odds at about 60, 40 that they would get killed. And when I was watching this, I thought, oh, those are our ancestors. You know, these scared, defenseless monkeys who... So this is getting back to your point of, or your question of, they had no ability to engage in long-term thinking because there's a better than likely chance they'd be dead in the next five minutes. And so everything was short-term immediate gratification. Like what makes you, what keeps you alive right now? And what kept them alive and what continues to keep the primates alive is 
social bonding, fear, and a desire to eat as many terrible fatty foods as possible. <laughs> I mean, this is what I say as a, as a cognitive behavioral scientist, right? We have to, our innate wiring is working against us in this modern, complex, risky landscape. It worked fine for, for our ancestors who needed to make these snap decisions, but it's not working out for us now. But you just said it's so much better than a scientist. Well, well yeah. but the nice thing, the, the very nice thing, as we know, is... And I'm sorry for overgeneralizing. I'm not a neuroscientist, but you know, there's the, the prefrontal cortex. And of course, there are no real separate systems in the brain, but like, you know, because phrenology is not a real thing. But broadly speaking, the prefrontal cortex is where our long-term calm executive functioning can happen. You know, the part of our brain that enables us to make informed rational choices you know like when you're in a parking lot and someone takes your parking space hopefully your prefrontal cortex kicks in and says you know i would like to kill that person but if i do that might be not commensurate with what they've done and also i will get in a lot of trouble and it's a bad thing to do as opposed to without the prefrontal cortex you jump out of your car and kill the person so what we've learned and I'm sorry for stating the obvious, is there's a lot of things that we can do that sort of engage the prefrontal cortex. You know, the more calm, the safer, the more stable the individual, the more they're able to reside in their prefrontal cortex. And so how that translates to policy or what have you, I have, I have no idea, but at least it's hopeful. Like we're not given a sort of evolutionary death sentence at birth. Like we have the ability to evolve. There just aren't a whole lot of things promoting our evolution. It's really nice to hear because we live in the middle of Washington, D.C. And I don't know if we're that optimistic, Moby. <laughs> yeah, we need yeah, a little Hollywood in D.C., please. <laughs> even, yeah, out the, yeah. even out the playing field for us over here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, isn't DC considered like the ugly people's Hollywood anyway? We're in the wrong place. I no clue. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hear what you're saying and I really, I really love the message. It means that we can be more proactive instead of reactive. And that's what that's what governance is. That's what policymaking is. That's what just good economic measures are, because we can't afford to keep cleaning up after some of these climate change impacts, mm -hmm. which include COVID-19, which include hurricanes, which include the wildfires mm -hmm. in California. It is much more expensive to invest in relief and recovery than it is to be proactive about it and you know prepared and prevented from ever happening that's just good economic sense yeah that's a fascinating approach and i completely agree and i feel like that's something as activists regard like progressive activists have for too long and i'm guilty of this as well have for too long our argument has been we should change because it's the right thing to do you know we've because so many of us are drawn to activism through morals, you know, through ethics, through our belief that like there is a right way of doing things and we're going to promote them. And I think approaching things financially can reach a lot more people. Like it's, you know, it's like in the world of animal rights, like for the longest time, the only argument animal rights activists had was you shouldn't hurt or be mean to animals. And that works with some people, but it doesn't reach a lot of people. 
Whereas if you can say, oh, by going vegan, you live longer, you're more attractive, you know, you have better erections, you avoid going to the doctor, all these things, appealing to people's self-interest and, and money is for a lot of people self-interest. Like it's a quantifiable way of showing what's right and what's wrong for a lot of people. And so you're absolutely right. Creating a sort of dollars and cents, you know, that the quantifiable sort of quantifiable activism, you know, because, but people, people don't know that. And it's, it goes back to neurochemistry or neural architecture a little bit. It's like someone eats a hot dog and it lights up their brain with dopamine and serotonin and they don't care what the consequences are because they're focused on their hot dog. And if you can say to them like, oh, this is going to give you arteriosclerosis, heart disease, um, promote Alzheimer's, destroy your biome, probably give you cancer, shorten your life expectancy, decimate the environment, decimate antibiotic use and cost you and your society trillions of dollars, then maybe people are less likely to engage in the bad behavior in the first place. At least it makes it easier to advance legislation. You know, when you can go to legislators and say, look, this is what it really costs. Like, this is the cost of subsidizing plastic production. This is the cost of subsidizing animal agriculture. This, you know, and I, I think that that's a, it's a very interesting way of advancing the issues that we care about, getting people to do the right thing without appealing to their better nature. If that makes so sense. how do we get people to, ex, to do, how, how do we develop policy and get people to get on board with scientific evidence, with the evidence base? Because we all have our confirmation biases, right? There's such a wonderful softball answer to that great question. And forgive me for stating the obvious, but we win elections, which is something that progressives have had so much trouble. <laughs> trouble with. Like, I mean, you look at 2016, the number of progressives who let Donald Trump become president, who let the Republicans take over Congress, like because they had some batshit nonsensical purity test that Hillary Clinton didn't pass. And so by being snooty progressives, they let the Republicans take over everything, you know? And I hope that the progressives have finally woken up and realized that you can't be high and mighty if the consequences of being high and mighty are losing elections to the devil. So let me, um, let me play maybe a little bit of devil's advocate here. Climate change is happening and it's happening very rapidly. You know, there's, I'm going to, I'm going to make the DC remark, you know, the U S department of agriculture puts out data that, you know, if we all uh, ate according to our dietary guidelines, which I, I know is controversial, but as a nutrition scientist, if, if we all ate according to our dietary guidelines, we would have to increase fruit and vegetable uh, consumption by something like three to four hundred percent for each here in the U.S. And then you have soil like erosion and depletion, water quality. I mean, you see the algae blooms, you know, in the Gulf. How do we move forward with vegetarian veganism in that aspect, but also get under that kind of a problem before it 
you know, well, gets bigger or happens. I mean, actually, like if if the world became vegan tomorrow, agriculture would shrink by about 80 percent. Because 80 percent of agriculture goes to feed livestock. So there would actually I mean, like the majority of arable land and the majority of ag, the vast, you know, like the majority of food that is produced is fed to cows, pigs and chickens. And so if we stop feeding human food to cows, pigs and chickens, we like we reduce antibiotic resistance, we reduce algae blooms, we reduce water use, we reduce topsoil erosion, we reduce everything, you know, like, and the end result is healthier food goes directly to people. Because one of the arguments for veganism, or at least not using animals for food, is how profoundly, horrifyingly inefficient a system it is. Like feeding food to animals and then eating the animals is like heating your house by building a fire outside. So proponents of animal agriculture would say that, you know, if you are making canola oil in Canada or you're growing oranges in Florida or, um, you know, you're growing corn in the Midwest, that, um, you know, a lot of those agriculture byproducts, if you think the corn husk, the orange peel, uh, the canola seeds that would normally end up in a landfill would be pelletized and, and given to cows. And so they would say that that the human feed to, to cattle, um, you know, is, is a little bit distorted in, in some of that aspect. What would you say to, to that? I would say, I would say simply that they are largely mistaken. All I know from all my friends who are, you know, researchers and work in this field is that 75 to 80% of agriculture is done to feed cows, pigs, and chickens. And, you know, Maybe there are some minor, minor instances where cows, pigs, and chickens are fed the byproducts of other agricultural processes, but that's so that it's so marginal and minimal. It's almost like it's almost irrelevant data. So let's say something like that can still exist. So there could still be animal consumption if we were able to figure out get rid of like the vast. Use uh, inefficiencies in the system. We've talked about how to improve communication to demographics. We've talked about how that can result in positive behavioral changes. Um, ultimately, we know your goal is to get rid of animal consumption altogether. We What we haven't talked about, and we've, we've talked about policies in terms of how to potentially make that happen. What we haven't talked about is better alternatives for people. So what is the infrastructure we can put in place so people can make better decisions towards that goal of yours? So I'm talking about cultivated meat, cellular agricultural options. Like these are, where, where do you fall on some of these new techniques? Well, I put out a book um, with my friend Mian Park, who's also based in DC. Uh, we put out a book about 10 years ago called Gristle. And it was sort of an academic look at the consequences of animal agriculture. And we did a, a short book tour and the recurring question that people asked us, sort of like their, their gotcha question, they were saying, well, it's too easy for you to promote veganism because veganism is expensive and how can people feed themselves, you know, when veganism is so expensive. So to your point, the answer to everything, subsidies. You know, without, without state, local, federal subsidies, 
a gallon of milk would be $25 and a pound of beef would be $70. And without subsidies, a family of four going to KFC or McDonald's would probably spend $80 on, on dinner. So the ultimate answer, but it's such an intractable problem, is redirect subsidies away from industries that cause nothing but expensive death and destruction. That goes for tobacco, that goes for guns, that goes for plastic, that goes for animal agriculture. And you redirect those subsidies towards more profitable industries that actually benefit communities, benefit the environment, benefit workers, and benefit people's health. So the answer to almost every question is subsidies but how, I mean, like, yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard question. You know, talk to Bruce Friedrich, talk to some of these guys about how you try and address the subsidy issue. And they just throw up their hands because well, what, it's such know, a baked in part of our system. We also subsidize corn, wheat, and soybeans tremendously. And in my opinion, refined carbohydrates, sugar, things like that can be just as detrimental. Yeah. It is worth keeping in mind that in that case, 90% of the corn, soy, and wheat that we subsidize goes to animal feed. I asked Cory Booker this and question. Ethanol. ethanol. Yeah. I asked yeah. Cory Booker this question. I was just like, you know, you were a proud vegan. This is when he was running for president. And uh, would you subsidize cultivated meat? Would you subsidize cellular agriculture? And he wouldn't give a straightforward answer. And we're actually inviting him to be on this podcast for this season too. And I'm gonna, we're gonna press him on that again because this is, it, it's exactly what you said. It's really resonating. And this is what we need answers from, from our policymakers, those we have elected into office that are aligned to underlying ethos, especially in this case, between you and Corey, I imagine more than just veganism is um, overlapping here. We should demand these answers from our policymakers. Yeah, because one of the consequences of our current system and one of the immediate, I mean, because people like, you know, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, all of which can be tied, as you mentioned, to like, you know, refined carbohydrates and sugar, but also largely to the consumption of animal products. But people sort of work under this assumption that like heart disease, cancer, and diabetes are hereditary. Like I had a friend of mine who was dangerously obese and he was seriously diabetic and he blamed his obesity and his diabetes on genes. And I just like, how do you, how do you argue with that, like he might as well be a flat earther or a climate denier. Like it's just, it's nonsense. Right. right. Um, but the consequence that we're about to deal with, apart from climate change, apart from all these health issues, is antibiotic resistance. You know, because as we know, then it's an indisputable fact, 80, according to the USDA and the NIH, 80% of antibiotic resistance is a result of animal agriculture. So, when people start dropping dead left and right from simple bacterial infection, that might prompt us to make a change in the industries we subsidize. Like when some smart politician stands up and says to some other politician they're running against, oh, you subsidized the industry that made antibiotics useless. That becomes, because election, I mean, as to state the obvious, politicians are terrified. They don't want to lose elections. And nothing ends your chances at winning an election faster than subsidizing industries that kill That children. is such a great point for us to end on. We actually, 
we had such a fascinating conversation with you. We'd love to keep this going. <laughs> well, you have to show our viewers your new tattoo before we go because I found that awesome. Oh, I got a bunch. I mean, I got like my, <laughs> my animal rights tattoo. What else do I have? On the back of my neck, I've got a cross that says thou shalt not kill. I've got vegan for life and um, protect the innocent, defend the vulnerable. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so we can definitely see the tattoo. When did you get it? Um, I was having a dinner with a few friends about 13 months ago and my birthday was coming up and one of my friends said, hey, for your birthday, you should get a tattoo. And I was turning 54 and I thought like, okay, when is there a better time to get a face tattoo than on your 54th birthday? And so I've gotten a whole bunch and they're, they're all, for the most part, they're all animal rights related. That's a wrap for today. Next, we'll be chatting with climate change expert, Dr. Frank Mitloner, a professor at the University of Southern California at Davis, otherwise known as the greenhouse gas guru. We'll dive deep into the scientific evidence surrounding the impact of animal agriculture on climate change, an episode you won't want to miss. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at RiskyBehaviorDC. That's all one word. My handle, at ShutTheChalk, that's S-W-E-T-A-C-H-A-K, or Taylor's handle, at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That one spelled as it sounds. You can also send us an email at hello.riskybehavior at gmail.com or a voice message at 202-713-5182. Shoot us some science or some shade. Thank you for tuning into Risky Behavior. Till next time.